One of the big things is that um, psychologists have found this huge connection between um, joy and gratitude. And so people who are dispositionally more grateful people seem to experience joy more often. Hello and welcome to Mothers Matter podcast, the podcast which talks about why mothers matter and what matters to mothers. I'm Claire Pay. Uh, today we're talking about joy. Um, what is joy? How do you define joy? Can you have more joy? Uh, all sorts of uh, questions like that. And I've just got the best person in the world to talk to you about this. It's, it's uh, Dr. Matthew Kuan Johnson, who is a leading researcher on the psychology of joy. Um, he is a phenomenally clever person. He has a BA in cognitive science from Yale University, an MPhil, which is a postgraduate in social psychology from Cambridge University, um, and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Cambridge. Uh, he has also he's consult, consulted for Google AI in the past and was a contributing scholar at the Yale Centre for Faith and Culture. So, um, as I said, very clever. And I really enjoyed putting some tricky questions to him, which I didn't think were tricky to start with, but um, apparently are, such as what is joy? Uh, how do we define it? Um, how can we help it grow? That, but I also took advantage of the opportunity to ask him about the Oxford Character Project. Uh, he is working on the Virtues and Vocations Initiative at the Oxford Character Project. So he's now at Oxford University. Um, and we had a really good discussion about what is character. Again, it's not quite as simple as I thought it might be. Um, with a view to thinking about our children and how can we help develop their character as well as ours. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Um, I would recommend you probably listen to it twice. There's quite a lot of content in it, um, but definitely worth a listen. Hopefully a really good way to set your mind for the year ahead as a way of uh, cultivating joy. Oh, well, Matthew, so, thank you so much for sparing the time to talk with me today. I'm really excited about this uh, this conversation about joy, um, because I think of you as Dr. Joy, that you are the person <laughs> that if you look up joy, you come up. So um, how did you how did you get into being involved with joy? Well, thanks so much for, for having me on the podcast, Claire. Um, I'm honored and delighted to be here. Um, yeah, so my interest in joy actually started uh, when I was a teenager, and it begins with my mother, which is rather appropriate for the <laughs> podcast. Um, but it's kind of a sad story. Um, so I was basically uh, on the phone with her when the gas line to the building I was in at the time um, exploded. And so she just kind of heard this explosion, and then she couldn't, she couldn't reach me back on the phone. Um, and it ended up being a really, really bad, uh, fire, um, resulted in a couple people, uh, dying. I only got out because I, uh, managed to get out of a window on the top floor and Gosh. I stood on a three inch ledge. And, uh, I, I remember after I was discharged from the hospital and, um, that I think there are, there are maybe like top three hugs that people remember in their, <laughs> in their life. And this was certainly when I saw my mom. And she uh, she gave me a hug. It was it was definitely definitely the best one and the tightest one I've ever received. Um, I just I, yeah I can't even imagine uh, for a mother kind of in the span of a very short period going from just the helplessness of not knowing if you lost your child to just the joy of having them restored to you. And um, there was I, I mean it, it's kind of the most defining and intense moment of joy um, seeing my mom there. Um, uh, that, that I've experienced in my life. And it, it, it had a number of features that kind of, I, I, I was puzzling over for a number of years. Um, the kind of connection to, to gratitude, there was just a real giftedness um, of the moment where we were kind of full of gratitude and joy. But there was also a real um, sorrow uh, because of the events. And it was interesting that joy seemed so compatible uh, with sorrow. Um, it kind of really became integrated in my life story. Um, and so these were all kind of features of joy that I got really interested in and was thinking about. And then um, right after I graduated from university, I had the opportunity to be involved with this really big um, multi-million dollar project at Yale that was the first kind of major study of joy. So I spent a few years kind of doing academic research on joy, and it culminated with this paper where 
basically, um, joy is kind of surprisingly the, one of the most understudied emotions in psychology. And a lot of that was because of the state of the literature was kind of very disparate and all over the place. So um, in my work um, on the project, I had basically kind of found a way of trying to make sense of this very disorganized uh, literature. And I use it by bringing in perspectives from philosophy and religious studies and, and literature to say, well, you know, here, here's some interesting other things that these psychologists should be thinking about. And the one of the main journals for the uh, study of kind of human flourishing and positive emotions, the journal of positive psychology um, actually ended up building a special issue of their journal around the article I'd written. And they hmm. commissioned um, 10 kind of leading psychologists and philosophers and religion scholars to write responses to my paper. And the hope is that now there's kind of like um, a, a kind of launching pad for there to be more work among psychologists, but also these other disciplines working closely with them um, on joy. So sorry, that's that kind of a long answer, but that's, uh, Brilliant. that's how I got, got involved. Well, thanks yeah. for joining me today. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's brilliant. What a story. What a story. Um, and, and you just mentioned sort of joy and sorrow. Can you find, I mean, it might be going in too deep too soon, but can you have, um, contemporaneous sort of feel joy in, in sorrow? Certainly. So this is one of the really interesting things is that um, joy is, is capable of being what's called a mixed emotion, where you can experience kind of positive and negative affect at the same time. And that's actually pretty unusual among the emotions. But the more I dug into it, the more I started to realize that kind of historically in literature um, and in different religions, um, a number of different figures kind of um, talk, talk, talk about this thing. There's, there's a kind of... Um, so I think one of the most uh, interesting cases is if you look at uh, many marginalized communities who are working for their liberation, one of the emotions that most characterizes them is often joy. And it's because they have this kind of future vision of what life will be like once they have finally worked to achieve their liberation. And the joy kind of transcends the boundaries of of, of time and, and it can, they can kind of participate in it a little bit in, in the moment, which kind of energizes um, these efforts to bring about the liberation and also, um, yeah, increases their motivation, increases their hope. And um, yet at the same time, there's profound sorrow in the kind of injustices that they're experiencing in, in the moment. And so I think, yeah, th those are some of the kind of most powerful examples, I think, of, um, of joy and sorrow. I mean, certainly the, the African-American uh, spirituals um, during the, the um, uh, during slavery in, in the United States, where, where I'm from, I, I, are really powerful testimonies to how joy and sorrow can, can coexist at the same time, but also be this really powerful force for, um, for bringing about one's own liberation. Amazing. And if you, um, if we uh, go on to sort of what is joy, but from what you're saying there, um, there's a, there can be a large element of anticipation in joy, the anticipation of joy in the future can make a difference to how you're feeling now. Um, right. And and wrapped up with that, can you is joy something you can really experience now, or is it more experienced in anticipation and in retrospect? Do you oh, go around really thinking, I feel I feel joyful now? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think kind of yeah, the the kind of um, standard way we experience joy is certainly in the present. Um, because joy is, I think, mostly characterized by its giftedness. It's kind of something that just strikes you uh, often out of nowhere. Um, and, and there's this sense that like, yeah, I can't really bring it about by my own means. So while it is true that we can often participate in joy um, through thinking about the future in the ways that we've just talked about, and sometimes by reflecting on the past, as you very helpfully mentioned, uh, I do really think it's, um, really mostly experienced by kind of present uh, things that come about. And uh, my, my favorite philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, has this great quote where he says, um, joy is the present tense with the entire emphasis on the present or something like that. Um, and, and so for him, too, he's really interested in how um, you kind of have to be just very present uh, to yourself in the moment and attending to things and that and that's when joy strikes you so when i've talked to people it's it's always something like you know they're really focused on some amazing meal that their spouse has prepared for them or they're out in nature and 
um, really attending to how the birds are chirping or something like that. Um, so, so is this real kind of entering into the present as fully as possible that I think is often what brings about joy. Yeah. And so with, with that then, um, can you create joy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so as I mentioned, I, I think joy is really characterized mostly by its giftedness. And actually the psychologist Carol Izzard uh, ranks um, all the emotions on how, how kind of under your voluntary control they are. And joy is uh, ranked last. Uh, so it's the <laughs> least kind of controllable. But it's also interesting because in the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's actually commanded. You're commanded to, to rejoice and be joyful. And so I think what that means is that while we can't directly bring about joy through our own efforts and control, we can kind of hold ourselves in readiness for joy. So we can kind of cultivate certain habits or dispositions or patterns of living that make us attentive to the kinds of things that are going to um, uh, basically make us ready so that when the lightning bolt of joy comes, we're ready to, to be struck by it and experience it. Um, and so, yeah, it's summed up well by the, the theologian Karl Barth has this quote where he says, um, it is certainly required of man that he should continually hold himself in readiness for joy. And so I think uh, in looking at the kind of Judeo-Christian tradition, I think one of the reasons why it's commanded is because there are also certain practices and habits and patterns of life that are commanded alongside of it that kind of potentiate people um, and prepare them for um, receiving joy when it, when it comes. And so, yeah, so it's, unfortunately, uh, there's no kind of, uh, overall trick I, I can give in terms of like, <laughs> here's how you can really control how joy works in your life. But certainly there are certain, um, yeah, patterns and modes of life that I think make it more likely that we will notice it and experience it when it, when it comes. What, what sort of habits would you suggest then or dispositions? What, how can you make yourself into a sort of person who's ready to recognize joy when it's, when you're feeling it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I have to answer this question uh, with my uh, academic joy researcher hat on and not personally, because despite all this time I spent studying joy, I still have not successfully cultivated any of these habits. <laughs> but they're, uh, yeah, so, so one of the big things is that um, psychologists have found this huge connection between um, joy and gratitude. And so people who are dispositionally more joyful people seem to, sorry, dispositionally more grateful people seem to experience joy more often. So um, one intervention that psychologists have found that's hugely helpful for cultivating gratitude is to keep a gratitude journal. So basically at the end of the day, before you go to bed, you just write down three things you're grateful for um, that day and you kind of reflect on them. And um, I think that can help um, kind of foster gratitude, which in turn, I think, um, kind of potentiates us for the experience of joy. The other thing is that joy is also a hugely um, social emotion. So there was a big study by a uh, psychologist named Chris Meadows in the 1970s, where he studied thousands of experiences of joy among university students. And he found that 70% of the experiences were affiliated, affiliative, and only 30% were um, individual, uh, which seems to suggest that joy is this huge emotion for kind of social bonding and social connections. So um, I, I think, yeah, being in deep community uh, with people, um, sharing, sharing joys with them, even sharing sorrows with them in kind of very intimate, uh, vulnerable ways, uh, I think also... Um, can foster joy. And then there's also been work through kind of network analysis, which has shown that uh, positive emotions uh, spread uh, among nodes of social relationships. So if you surround yourself uh, with people who um, are kind of like very joyful people and there are or around people who are around people who are around joyful people, that seems to suggest that, um, yeah, you may be able to kind of uh, catch catch their joy uh, a little bit. And so also kind of trying to surround ourselves with, with joyful people can be, can be helpful. So these, these are all things that uh, I have been reflecting on and not yet integrated very well into my life. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, there's a few questions from that. Um, what's network analysis? Oh, yes. So network analysis is, um, it's basically a way of using uh data from a whole bunch of people to try to understand um, connections um, between 
uh, different people and how things like uh, emotions spread between them. So it's just the kind of very uh, computer programming based uh, tool by which people are doing really cool um, studies of psychology or like disease modeling, how diseases spread. Uh, it's just a good, yeah, it's a, it's a good way of measuring how things spread on a kind of large scale and seeing the kind of different nodes and networks of communities. Yeah. Yes. And, and the interesting thing where you were saying about um, gratitude being so mm. linked to joy, and I think you said earlier that joy quite often comes from the outside, um, that that it's almost a a recognition of sort of good things in the world around you that will will spark your joy it's very it's very unselfish from some point of view that that it's it's just a sort of um i don't know almost a passive there's not much you can do other than put yourself in a disposition to recognize the good things that are happening yeah definitely yeah certainly <laughs> yeah it's it's a it's a very it's a very receptive kind of emotion yeah it's it's mm. very interesting in that regard what do you mean by receptive Oh, just exactly what you're saying in oh, okay. terms of, um, yeah, we, we kind of just receive it. Exactly. Yeah. We're really like these lightning rods that we just have to put ourselves in the right position and then we're just struck by joy from the outside. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually the most, one of the um, biggest books that we, we know about is the C.S. Lewis Surprised by Joy. Um, oh, yes. Have you looked into that one at all and what, what he's written there? I have. Yeah. And I think what's amazing about Lewis is, um, I mean, he, he had these moments of such intense joy, but they were also so few. And one <laughs> of the really interesting things about working on this stuff is when people find out I'm researching joy, I, it's, a, it's amazing how many people have this deep desire to experience joy and the sense that joy in its kind of purest forms is so rare and that you've only experienced it you know, maybe a handful of times in your life. And that's that's where I think Lewis's book is really interesting, how he traces it autobiographically. And and I mean, silly, I think I, I mentioned at the beginning, like how um, because of the experience and seeing my mom after the fire, joy was really integrated into my life story. And it, it's similar for Lewis, right? Um, Surprised by Joy is, is his autobiography. And he's kind of trying to pick out these different moments of joy and sh and use that as a device for, for telling his, his story. And I mean, also, his, his wife's name was Joy, right? So there's that kind of fun <laughs> yeah. functioning there. Um, but I, yeah, the amazing thing about Lewis is he has this really beautiful conceptualization of joy where um, it, it's really bound up in um, uh, a kind of desire that's partially fulfilled, but also increases the de desire for more. So joy is kind of drawing you towards a deeper vision of what you are in your truest self and you just continually want more of it, but it's not the kind of, but, but there's also kind of um, a wholeness or completeness to it at the same time. So it's not like happiness where you experience pleasure and then you just keep wanting more of it. Like you do want more of it and joy, but it's also a very kind of like uh, filling or resting or uh, peaceful type of motion. And so there's all these kind of like really interesting paradoxes like that, that are contained in joy. And I think of, of anyone who's written on it, uh, Lewis is definitely up there in terms of kind of the most insightful and provocative uh, 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 ways of writing about it. There's a poet named uh, Yehudi Amachai who writes basically one of the most difficult things about joy is just being able to explain it and describe it because he says life is just full of so much pain and it's so common that I, th he, I think the end of the poem it writes something like I, I learned to speak among the pains right but joy is so rare that we just don't have the language or vocabulary for it um, because it's just so uncommon so it has this kind of ineffability to it and I think that's where I'm so glad you brought up surprised by joy I mean because I think Lewis does such a good job of trying to render this ineffability more um, uh, explainable in language, and yet he still r reaches up against the limits of what he's able to to describe. So it's it's kind of like a, it's kind of like an impressionistic or, or pointillistic uh, painting. When you read his account, you kind of have to squint and look really far back, and then you say, "Oh yeah, okay, 
I, I think I understand a little bit of what he's like gesturing at. It's like, I don't, I don't quite see it, but I kind of see the <laughs> sign that's pointing to it. Yeah. 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 Yes. I think we also, when you talk about the network analysis and the impact uh, that someone has on people around them, um, and we'll come back to this later, but that's where my mother had sort of sparked up that I think, well, if mo- as mothers, we can become people who are likely to be joyful. Hopefully we will impart that to our children. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because um, I think the more I started to to think about um, uh, some of the topics you had you had mentioned around the mothering podcast, the, the more I started to realize, like maybe we shouldn't be thinking as much about how, as parents, we can spread things to our children. Because I think it's actually the opposite of way way around. I think as as adults, we've lost our understanding of how to be joyful, and it's actually children. Who, who already know, right? Like, I, I think they're the ones who need to be teaching us. Um, I, I mean, I obviously say this is not being a parent or a mother, so this is could just be totally useless <laughs> uh, 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 thoughts on my point. But um, yeah, there's this really amazing quote by G.K. Chesterton I really like where he says something like, you know, the, the issue is that what children... You know, you can look at them and if they see something that's really cool, they're just like, again, do it again. And then you do it again and they're like, do it again, right? And, and they don't get worn out of the kind of like loss of novelty. It, it is continually to experience this joy and wonder and everything. He says like, the problem is we have become old. Like we need, we need to get back to that like kind of childlike joy. So yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I, this is, this is one of these cases where I think it may be that children have a lot to teach us and, and maybe it's just the case that we need to help them figure out how to retain this capacity for joy before they lose it. Yes, it's interesting to say that, you know, children sparking joy, that that mothers, I suppose you can find, and fathers obviously, find joy in your children, that, you know, people Mm -hmm. always talk about the birth of your child being a really joyful moment. And then, but then the... um, sort of exhaustion fits <laughs> comes oh, in and the yeah. crossness and everything and uh, but if we can um i guess find the joy that to share the joy i mean joy shared is that a thing <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so this is one of the really interesting features of joy is that it's not just that we experience joy on behalf of somebody else right like we, we might say I'm so happy for you, right? Like uh, people write that in in kind of um, wedding cards and things like that. I'm so happy for you, right? But people don't really say I'm so joyful mm. for you. And so the interesting thing is, while happiness is something you can feel on behalf of somebody else, or you can kind of view from the outside, joy is something you can kind of um, enter into someone else's joy. I think it's helpful because it means that when we're kind of, uh, downcast or things in our life aren't necessarily going so well, um, there is this real possibility maybe that we can enter into the joy of others. And it's not just kind of vicarious joy or joy on behalf of somebody, but we can actually really begin to participate in the joy. And I think it's a really kind of perhaps even one of the most intimate forms of human connection to enter into such a full and rich kind of completeness um, that someone else is experiencing and experience it with them. Yeah, gosh, that, that throws up quite a lot of thoughts, actually. Um, but I think at this point, it'd be quite <laughs> good to, to um, extrapolate the difference between joy and happiness, just to define yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so um, it's really, yeah. So the interesting thing is that it seems that so much of our contemporary culture is obsessed with happiness. And that's also kind of the state of the, the so positive psychology is the study of positive emotions, human flourishing. That's also the state of positive psychology at the moment. So people are really interested in studying happiness there too. <laughs> and so one of the reasons why the journal positive psychology did this special issue on joy was because they're trying to push back against that and say, you know, if we're trying to think about doing academic research, that's also going to, be important for social good. Uh, maybe we've done enough work on happiness. So we should really focus on joy, right? Um, and uh, there, so there are a few reasons why I think uh, so. Joy is certainly distinct, but um, also kind of more important to shift our focus to. The first is that happiness kind of is characterized by stasis. Um, you're experiencing pleasure or comfort, and you just really want that to persist. 
Whereas joy actually involves um, goal pursuit and developing new capacities. So within the developmental literature, which is the study of uh, children's development, um, joy is conceptualized in terms of a framework known as broaden and build. So basically when you experience, and, and so it's associated with play actually. So when you're joyful, you're kind of in a state of freedom and security and play. And so you can um, broaden and build refers to, you can kind of like experiment because you know, there's not going to be bad consequences. Um, you can try out new ways of doing things, new ways of thinking about things, um, new types of uh, engaging with other people. And so joy is very much about kind of developing yourself, broadening and building your capacities and um, yeah, also pursuing goals. There are certain forms of joy that are uh, associated with the dopaminergic system, which is our reward system in our brain. And so it's not just like happiness where you just kind of like sit back and you're like, everything's fine. I'm in, in you know, taking a lot of pleasure in life. Uh, joy actually kind of challenges you to get out there and, and better yourself and to work to yeah, bring about better conditions. The second is that as, as, as we've uh, discussed, um, happiness is, is a pretty kind of individual emotion a lot of the time. And joy is uh, really associated with social bonding. Uh, like I mentioned with the Chris Meadows study, but he found 70% of those experiences he studied were affiliative. And also that, yeah, it's this emotion where you can enter into others. And then I guess the final quick one I'll mention really quickly, it does have to do with life story. Uh, so as we talked about with Lewis and myself, and actually, if you talk to most people, um, the most intense experiences of joy really seem to shape uh, the kind of narrative people use to kind of make sense of their lives and their own identity and their sense of self, their sense of the world, their place in it. It seems to me from what you're saying that happiness is is more ephemeral and slightly shakier. That <laughs> happiness is more dependent on your circumstances at the moment. And in within happiness, there's a slight fear that this won't last. <laughs> that yeah. if these circumstances change, my happiness will go. Whereas with joy, as, as it's more of a sort of receptive thing, it, it seems a lot deeper and something that's that's longer, that you can feed off joy. And if you, you don't look back and say, oh, I was happy then. And you think, therefore, that's great. Um, you look back and say, I experienced joy then, even in a bad circumstance, and I can experience joy in the future. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Um, thanks so much. Wow. Yeah, okay. uh, you, you could have just summarized my, my whole uh, two-minute rambling in, in, in that third second. That was perfect. Yeah, thank you. But then um, also what, what you're saying there is um, about altruism. And I wanted uh, to ask you a bit about altruism because there have been these um, studies saying that altruism is really at the basis of a lot of joy. And, and my own little interpretation, and then you can say it in, in better words, is that um, – there's a slight fear if you pursue happiness that you won't get it and you're the only one really benefiting from it. But if you're altruistic, if you're doing things for other people, um, and I always say this to, to the children and my children who don't listen, um, <laughs> I, I say if you're doing things for other people, it doesn't matter whether you're happy or not. You've made other people happy or joyful. Um, and then that's great. You're, you, there's not as much pressure. I think it's a lot of pressure to feel happy. And if you take away that pressure, and it doesn't matter if I feel happy, but if there's joy coming out of this situation, that's that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, no, that's wonderfully put. And I think, I mean, the the, the best kind of analogy I, I can think of for this and that I've had in the back of my mind is kind of like how it is when you try to learn a new sport or something like that, right? So when you try to learn how to do the perfect golf swing, uh, they, they kind of coach you to break it down into all the different components and, and, and you can't, you can't do it, right? You're so focused on the different things you're supposed to, where your head's supposed to be facing, how the foot's supposed to pivot, right? And it's, it's just a disaster. The more you're trying to do it, uh, the worse it like ends up, right? And, um, yeah, I mean, so, so I grew up doing martial arts and it was, it was very much like that where you have your kind of coats or, uh, we call them shurfu and they would always say these crazy things like, no, you can't be trying the punch, right? You gotta, you gotta try to not try, right? <laughs> like, and then, but it's one of these things where it's just you, you kind of, when you're in the right mindset to do it properly, you're you're not trying because the trying is self-defeating. It, it just kind of happens all all by itself, right? And and I think it's the exact same thing with with happiness and with joy. The harder you try, the more you're focusing on yourself. When the kind of insight from the analogy to the the, the sports of the martial arts literature is you actually have to be 
self-conscious in a way that's not typical self-consciousness. You can't be so focused on yourself that you're analyzing every little thing. Um, and, and that's the difficulty with happiness is I think the more we try to be happy, the more we're locking ourselves inside of our own heads and inside of our own failures to bring about our own happiness. Whereas exactly as you said, um, to, to kind of cultivate joy, you have to be drawn out of yourself. Um, Robert Duncan describes joy as, um, uh, entering into an otherness in which I am more truly I, which I think perfectly captures it. There has to be this kind of alterity or otherness that, that gets you outside of yourself. Um, and so there has to be a small uh, shift of focus from the self and from your own efforts and what you're doing towards um, towards someone else. And, and that happens often best through altruism, as, as you've mentioned. And, and when you do that, you actually kind of find yourself returned to yourself, right? I think that's what Duncan means when he says it's uh, entering into an otherness in which I am more truly I. Because we're, as human beings, made for uh, social relationships. And so I think when we find this deep resonance in this kind of connection by entering into that otherness, we, we have ourselves kind of restored and returned to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, so, so doing things for other people. So you would have thought that mothers would be amongst the most joyful people in the world because we're <laughs> constantly doing things for other people. Um, yeah. But I don't, I don't know if you think, I was trying to think uh, about this. I was thinking, who do I know, who the people I know who are the most joyful? And I can think of people who are happy. Uh, but I, and then I did think of um, people who are joyful. But it's often actually, it's not always mothers, you know, that mothers we, we sort of present as very stressed <laughs> a lot of the time and uh, rushing around and trying to get everything done. And, you know, that, that uh, I'm just wondering if we can think a little bit more about how we find the joy in life if we think, well, actually putting the children in a situation where they're joyful. The problem is my children are very joyful when they're on a screen and <laughs> playing, <laughs> playing Xbox oh, and on no. social media. That's where their <laughs> joy is found. Um, or, you know, if I've not cooked something they don't like for supper, you know, they have very low, low standards. <laughs> so they, oh, thank goodness, it's something I don't dislike. Um, but how do we, uh, I'm just thinking how we cultivate uh, joy and how do we teach people to learn how to be joyful? Yeah. Oh man. That's, yeah, that's so tough. I think particularly with the mother case, I mean, obviously I, I don't know anything about this. I only know it from the side of being the, uh, being the, the, the burden. I think it's, I mean, you're absolutely right uh, about the altruism piece. I think for those who aren't in the kind of, um, position where, where they're actually raising children, it's easier to kind of pick and choose the, the altruistic pieces, right? So joy is a lot easier because you're just not on 24-7, right? It's easier to do a small, nice thing for someone if it's the one thing you've done that day rather than if you've been doing altruistic things for people 24-7 for 18 years, right? And so I think there, yeah, there, it, I, I wish there was some kind of answer or magic bullet. I mean, mothers are just so, so overworked. <laughs> they have to be on all the time. Um, but I do think one of the nice things is that there's this also ready-made um, connection often, right? That's like, I mean, one of the deepest connect connections there, there, there can be. And I think I, I, I've certainly heard it described by my own mom that, um, I mean, you know, here, here I am, I'm almost 30 and uh, I, I call her every week and she just wants to hear about how I'm doing. Right. And, and like, she just gets so much joy when things are kind of going well for me, even if they're small things, right. Way more than if some big thing had happened, uh, for her. And I, I think, you know, um, despite, uh, all, all of the challenges and difficulties and, and burdens that I'm sure I've posed and can't even imagine and don't understand and that she probably altruistically hasn't even told me, you know, the surface <laughs> of the, or the tip of the iceberg. Um, it does, it has struck me that there's something really powerful and, and unique, um, uh, about that ability to, um, yeah, experience kind of tiny joys that somebody else has, has, is sharing with you that, that, that is your child um, more than even like big joys in, in your own life. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, when you say burden there, actually, it does remind me that it's, I don't think of my children as a burden at all. I do see, <laughs> I do see them as a, 
a source of joy, actually, and particularly when they're little and they're asleep. That's a very joyful time. You look at them and they're asleep and you think they're not about to, you know, demand anything from you or anything. <laughs> but, they, but I do get uh, just, I get much more joy in a life as a mother than I did from all the really interesting things I did before. Because I think you, it is the altruistic thing that you are doing things for other people. Mm. And I don't go around sort of feeling resentful and so on. It's just, it is a joy to be to have the children around to do things for and I, I think maybe that's a that's an attitude because there are so many people who can't have children or things who, that go wrong or whatever you're I you know I'm in a constant state of gratitude that I I have these children and actually when I, I mentioned to you before that and I've mentioned on the podcast before that when my son was very small he was very ill and um touch and go for about three weeks and then and he recovered and then immediately after he recovered my husband got Crohn's and he was in oh, hospital no. on and off for a year um uh. and 18 months and so on but I was and then my son kept waking up at night and I was so joyful that he he um was around to wake me up <laughs> so and I wouldn't have appreciated it as much if he'd just been born and he was fine Aww. I wouldn't have appreciated it but I mean I'd be resentful I'd be resentful for the first few seconds and I'd think oh he's woken up again but um I think if he hadn't been ill this would have been much harder I'm just so pleased wow. he's here to wake me up and uh, sort of stop my sleep um so it's a it's wow. that's very much comes from what you're saying about gratitude and I, and I think from some, some things you've said, and I've sort of mentioned it, and I get what you're saying about it's very in the present, but I think joy is very mm. informed by an absence of pain. <laughs> Where there's mm. been pain and sadness, just an mm. absence of it can bring joy. And anticipation of positive things in the future, huh. I think, can bring joy in the present. That's what you're saying about the you know, the refugees or whoever, that this situation will not be the end, that there will be a future. And that can spark joy now, even if it's not the reality that you're living in. But you're experiencing joy now because of the anticipation of something coming up. Definitely. Yeah, that's so powerful. <laughs> that's, that's such a powerful example too. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's my, my thought on that. But um, I, th I think gratitude is, uh, can you say a bit more about gratitude? Because I, th I think it is something that we, you can learn gratitude more easily, I think, in a way. It's like a stepping stone to joy. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, gratitude is a stepping stone to joy. Because you're absolutely right. We do have a lot more, we have a lot more control uh, over, over our gratitude. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, because as I mentioned, I, I really think one of the main things that characterizes joy is its um, giftedness. And so I think the more we experience um, occasions for joy as gift, kind of the more intense the joy uh, becomes. I'm not quite sure why that is. Um, there are still all these puzzles around joy that remain. But I think you're absolutely right that if you cultivate yourself to really be attuned to the kind of giftedness of of the joy in in, in gratitude um, by kind of expanding your capacity for gratitude yeah it really does expand your uh, capacity for joy because I I'm not sure we really get joy from things that we um, totally feel we deserve right and so <laughs> when this kind of uh, yeah when, when when gratitude comes into the picture I think I think that's when we kind of experience joy as it's it's supposed, uh, supposed to be or or as the only way you can <laughs> yes yeah it's it's difficult because you think again with children that you encourage children to be grateful for things but that's almost <laughs> uh sort of i don't know hard work for that that you don't want to be saying you know for goodness sake i've done all this for me for you they only recognize it when they've left home i think and they think oh someone else is cooking for me um but also i've heard i've heard it said that actually you're and it's a very sort of negative approach in a way, but it works, that you're better off comparing yourself with someone worse off than you <laughs> or yourself oh, in a situation in which you're worse off than you're in now. So that's one of the, the good things about sort of suffering in the past. You've got huh. the whole at least, you know, I quite often think at least we're not having to rush off to the hospital now to visit my husband mm. or, you know, at, at least... Uh, I don't know. We've he's got a job or whatever. That that it seems a bit, I don't know, almost rude to look at people worse off than yourself. But it it does make you recognise yourself in yourself all the things you have got that you might have taken for granted. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, and I, I do think it's also so as I was kind of looking at different 
um, kind of autobiographical accounts of people who experience joy or different religious figures. You're absolutely right that it, it seems that a lot of the joy comes out of this sense of gratitude. They, they'd experience something horrific or really traumatic. And then there's this kind of almost, yeah, this, this wholeness and this peace that, that emerges from realizing all the things that have been taken for granted and, and that, um, yeah, things we, yeah, like health, um, or, or access to clean water or a loving community that's not actively working to betray you. These are all <laughs> things that, uh, that, yeah, folks kind of become really, really grateful for and uh, kind of increases the capacity, capacity for, for joy. So summing up um, that, we, we're looking at sort of gratitude uh, being important for joy because you're recognizing um, situations you're in or things people have done for you or whatever. Uh, and then joy being a, a, a reaction to the experience of positive things, which, which isn't always, yeah, you, we said right at the beginning that you can have joy in sorrow, in the middle of a sorrowful situation. You can find joy, can, just comes upon you. It's very hard, it's, it's very hard to, to seek. You can just put the circumstances in place where you are joyful. Um, and, and linked to that, I also wanted to ask you about character, because I oh, think yes. that will be behind um, some of this as well, developing a character that is such. And uh, you're involved with the Oxford Character Project. Um, right. Can you te yeah. tell us more about what that is, please? Yeah, definitely. So the Oxford Character Project um, is this big uh, research and programming initiative uh, at the University of Oxford based in the Humanities Division. Um, and it started, uh, I think, in 2013. And it basically, they, they were running these programs for Oxford students to try to help them develop uh, virtues and, and moral character that would serve them well um, as, as leaders, as actually, I mean, the, the world's kind of future leaders. Um, and the concern was that at leading universities like Oxford, they teach a lot of skills and techniques of effective leadership, right? But kind of, they were wondering about the full formation of the students um, in terms of, but what about being formed in terms of being like morally good leaders? And so it seemed like there was this gap that needed to be addressed. So the programs had been running for um, about five or six years. And then last year they decided they were going to, you know, they were really onto something. The programs were successful and it was time to kind of to, to, to take it to the next level. So they got a two and a half million dollar grant um, to basically continue the building the programs at Oxford, um, but also to expand the research wing into doing more academic uh, research into character formation. So I guess I'll start with what's in character. Um, I mean, it's kind of a nebulous concept that gets thrown around a lot. It's kind of hard to know what it means and different philosophical and religious traditions have, have cashed it out differently. But I think in broad strokes, it basically just refers to um, your kind of like moral disposition to um, consistently perceive and think about and behave in, in moral ways. And then also um, many uh, uh, moral philosophers have traditionally thought that there's like this, what's called the articulacy requirement. So you have to explain, be able to explain why something's moral. Like you have to have some level of understanding. It's not enough to just kind of intuitively understand. So I think in terms of the character education in schools, um, I'm, I'm definitely heartened uh, by the shift. It seems like, um, yeah, like, obviously hugely important to be to be raising uh, uh, people of character. And, and the shift, I think, that needs to happen is to have a bigger focus on exemplars. Um, so within the kind of virtue theory tradition, the thought is that like one of the best ways of teaching virtue is to just surround people by examples like of, 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 of uh, moral paragons, right? Because we learn through imitation, right? And you just look at small children, they just imitate everything that's going on around them. And I, I mean, it's traditionally how things were approached, right? In, in oral traditions, um, children would be, you know, read the, the Iliad or the Odyssey every night before they, they go to bed or certain stories or parables from their religious tradition. And that kind of seeps into your consciousness and forms you in certain ways. Um, Aristotle famously was like, what, you know, like, so, so in moral philosophy, there's these other traditions, um, like deontology is like, oh, how do I know what, what it is to, that's the right thing to do? And it, it, they catch it on in terms of rule following and consequentialism. It's like, well, how do I know what the right thing to do as well? I have to look to the consequences. Um, virtue, 
ethics is way different because it's just like, well, how do I know what the virtuous thing to do is? And Aristotle says, oh, the virtuous thing to do is what the virtuous person would do, right? And some people are like, well, that seems kind of circular. <laughs> but I don't think it's really meant as a kind of like, you know, uh, like deep justification of the framework. I think I think it's meant as supposed to be like a helpful tool. It's kind of like people who wear the what would Jesus do wristbands, right? It's, uh, it's, it's a way of saying... Um, you know, here, here are the exemplars that inspire me and that I want to be like, what would they do in this situation? Right? I think the more you kind of are able to point to those exemplars and use it as a kind of tool for deciding your life, um, the easier these things get. And then eventually it kind of so fully seeps into your being and identity that you just start to do the right things for the right reasons, like instinctively and naturally. But then, and this is the final thing, this goes back to the kind of articulacy requirement. You also need a kind of vocabulary or understanding of why those are the right things to do. And so I think in schools, um, it, it, it's not enough just to kind of like teach character in the, in the abstract or surround people by exemplars. Like it's also important that um, students have the kind of vocabulary and framework and principles to really um, uh, 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 explain why something is, is the right thing to do. Uh, that I think that's what kind of really forms a really stable um, grounded uh, moral character that will hopefully persist across different types of situations uh, for the for the rest of one's life. But character is is also very very fragile, and there's obviously notable examples. Of, you know, pro- prominent famous people are often probably we all have examples from our own life of people who are really virtuous in one regard and not not so virtuous in other <laughs> domains. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it's, um, I, I don't know what you think about the sort of underlying side of it, that if you're doing something for the right reason for someone else and you're being moral and ethical, you you feel better about yourself. So mm. is it essentially selfish? Oh, wow. <laughs> that's yeah. And that's not necessarily negative, but could you teach people that, or I try and teach my children that even, you know, you will feel happier about yourself if you are the sort of person who does things for other people or who is kind. Because I think one thing that happens when relationships go wrong is that people are with people who make them feel bad about themselves because they're treating them badly. So A is treating bad B badly, and A feels bad that they're treating B badly. But when they're around B, they're always treating them badly. So they always make A feel bad about themselves, and it's a sort of negative <laughs> circle. But you can have that in a virtuous circle as well that, you know, I... I like treating A uh, B well because it makes me feel good because I've done something for them and that makes me feel good and then they're they're gr- grateful and that makes me feel good. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, so this is yeah, this is one of the difficult things about the the kind of virtue theory tradition is that uh, usually kind of most philosophers or figures working in this tradition think that if you do the virtuous thing, you're also supposed to take pleasure in it, and then exactly all these issues that you raise is like. Well, is it really altruistic if you're also getting pleasure? And um, I think, I think, I think, basically, the governing principle that it comes down to for evaluating is: Are you getting? Are you doing it for the pleasure? Or is the pleasure kind mm-hmm. of coming out as a side effect and like an added bonus? And I think initially, when you're first kind of being habituated into virtue and learning virtue, it's totally fine for your motivation to be um, just you know, pleasure seeking. Right. But I think eventually once you get inside these practices and this virtuous ways of seeing and experiencing the world, then you start to do it for its own sake and you get the pleasure as a side effect. So it's a kind of like fake until you make it type thing. And the example they often use in the virtue theory literature is like playing chess with your children. Right. So you might initially bribe your child and be like, okay, if you, if you play a game of chess with me, uh, I'll buy you ice cream afterwards. Right. And, And so the kid's only doing it for ice cream. They don't understand the whole point of like, chess and like why it's a great thing for exercising your mind and all these things. But once they actually get inside the practice, they start to see the value of it, right? They start to think like a chess player and they start to value the chess way of life. And then eventually they don't care about the ice cream anymore because they're inside the practice. But you have to kind of use pleasure as a way of getting them um, incentivized to get to get in that kind of headspace in the first place. Yes, um, yeah. Um, can you mention some of the, just uh, quickly because I know we're running out of time, but some oh, of the yeah. um, characters that are characters? As such, what are the characteristics of character? What's in it? Is, is uh, I don't know, gratitude a thing, or what? What are oh, the different yeah. elements of character? Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting because everybody has kind of different lists of the virtues that <laughs> that make up character. And the really interesting thing is also 
how culturally differentiated it is, right? So in some cultures, what's seen as a virtue is seen as a vice in, in other cultures. So I, I, I do think there are kind of broad meta level virtues that everybody's kind of aligned on, right? Like people generally think humility is uh, a good thing. Um, people generally think courage is a good thing. Um, I mean, Aristotle uh, had kind of one of the most helpful ways of conceptualizing it, which is that he said that the virtues lie in between uh, in the medium of, uh, of, of two vices. So you have a vice of excess and a vice of defect, and then you find the virtue in the middle. So for instance, something like courage, it's the halfway point between like recklessness or rashness and between cowardice, right? So if, if you're a, if you're a soldier, you don't want to be reckless and then just kind of always charging ahead towards the gunfire without calculation, but then you also don't want to be a coward and always running in the opposite direction. You want to be someone in the middle who appropriately feels fear when they're getting fired upon, but is able to overcome their fear if the right thing to do is actually to charge forward. Um, and so I think, uh, I think we, we, unless we kind of really identify with the tradition that kind of hands down and, and, and commands certain virtues, uh, it's something that we have to kind of scrutinize and figure out for ourselves. And I think one helpful way is identifying the vices we really want to avoid and trying to figure out what virtues might lie situated um, in the middle of the vice of excess and defect and, and, and protect uh, against that. And then I think um, even for those of us who may have been handed down, um, different uh, lists of virtues from our philosophical uh, or religious traditions or even our societal context. I think it's really important we we scrutinize them too because it's not necessarily the virtues that we've been uh, handed in their current form are, are the way they should be either. Um, mm. yeah. what, what are the virtues in the Oxford Character Project? Yeah, so we're studying things like, uh, well, so this is also interesting is that there are also what's known as epistemic virtues, which are virtues to do with knowledge. So we're really interested in trying to figure out how the moral virtues relate to the epistemic virtues. So the epistemic virtues are things like creativity, inquisitiveness, um, uh, uh, open mindedness, uh, things like that. Right. And th those are the things that make you like a, a good thinker or a wise thinker. We're trying to figure out how is it that being a good or a wise thinker and having those virtues relates to the moral virtues as well. Right. Um, but in terms of the moral virtues, uh, yeah, I mean, we're interested in, um, we're kind of looking across different traditions and different cultures to try to figure out how, how they're thinking of the different virtues. But the kind of standard ones we're really interested in are things like uh, courage and humility and uh, temperance and self-control. Um, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, so, um, it, and, and, and again, it, the difficulty is that they often mean different things to, different people in different contexts. So um, a, a lot of what we're also trying to do is also kind of present what the options on the table are in, in the kind of the most compelling way and, and help people, um, yeah, just, just kind of be able to, to also, you know, uh, con construct their, their own vision of the kind of flourishing character-led life um, for themselves as well. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm interested in the virtues because it gives me something to think about with the uh, the children rather than sort of talk oh, yeah. about, um, you know, uh, tests and so on. So particularly if someone doesn't do so well academically to say, well, you know, you faced up to, I don't know, the bully over there or you managed to just be self-controlled today or something. Those those sort of <laughs> things, sort of, taking it, take it, sort of naming it and saying, right, this is something to be intentional about and, and try hard. And then what you're saying about the... Um, uh, virtuous people and the exem examples, you know, exemplars. That's that's really sort of transforms the image of a, a parent, a mother or father, to be someone who shows by their the way they behave and live their lives how their children should be. Unfortunately, a lot of the times it's translated into, um, you know, as a mother, I'm going to go out to work and work really hard and to show you that we should all, you know, make lots of money, which I which I don't, <laughs> don't agree with. But to, to say, you know, I've uh, given up my job because you're the priority or you know I want, I'm very lucky to be able to do this and and to be able to talk sort of intentionally around the virtues that you think it's important to develop um and and particularly in terms of mental health where there's a lot of competition to be rated according to a sort of grade now it's grades one to nine or A's actually to say well that's just you know do, is there a virtue called doing your best 
Is that what? <laughs> Ooh, yeah. There's yeah. So so many systems work out kind of tenacity or perseverance as oh, a there you go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I it's think an important it's, one. It's there's very, a lot more very to be to cultivate. Yeah. So yeah, tenacity or your perseverance, picking yourself up, uh, resilience. Resilience mm. is one that's been around for a long time. Is resilience yeah. still in there, or is that yeah, is that out? yeah. Okay, and, it's resilient. It's, <laughs> it's continued. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's also there's this really interesting psychological work that's kind of just budding on what they're calling anti fragility. So it's this way of conceptualizing resilience that's not just like, you know, can can you keep kind of picking yourself up and and, and persisting, but but actually like can you get broken and go through really traumatic things and then, you, you know, at least in, in some respects, build back, build back stronger, build back better. So it's kind of like anti-fragility is like, if you, if you drop a glass, it just shatters. Right. But, it, but if you, if you kind of are, are, are uh, let's say exercising or, or weightlifting, right. What's actually happening is your, your muscle fibers are tearing and then they're growing back denser and you get stronger. And so that's an example of anti-fragility because there's tearing in the short term, but, in the long term, you're actually getting stronger. Yeah. Uh, well, it used to be called just character building. <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's what it was. Anything bad that happened, your parents say, oh, it's character building. That's but right. you say, well, you know, my character's strong. That'll do for now. I've got I've built my character. We're okay. We're, we're in with character. But, you know, all is the joy of the whole of life, isn't it? You're constantly developing and hopefully becoming a better person and uh, you know wiser and so on and so there's a sort of ongoing purpose to it but but it's nice to bring it into schools um to to, to say well actually what sort of work are you going to be when you're when you grow up yeah and i think the other really healthy thing about bringing it into schools is um it's just how how related to identity the curriculum is, right? So when the curriculum's all around grades and these are the tools you need to be effective at your future job, it's really easy for your identity to get totally wrapped up in external assessments of your worth, right? Or or of your um, I, I I struggle to say grades are, are are indicative of intelligence, right? But but right or, or wrapped up in kind of one's intelligence or what one's producing in these ways, right? Whereas I think character gets much more to the core of identity and, and who you are and what a person is. So I think if the curriculum are able to um, kind of put a greater focus on that, there will be a corresponding shift in terms of people coming to see that more is connected to identity and then starting to say, well, you know, I'm really worried about developing myself in all these other ways. So I have future skills and whatever my future vocation or employment mm. is, but actually thinking like, but maybe it's just as important or even more important what kind of person I'm going to be, like, morally speaking. Yeah. Mm. Well, the difficult thing is measurement. Uh, is that something mm. that Oxford Character Project can work on? Because at the moment you have easy measurement of, I don't know, intelligence or ability to pass <laughs> exams. Um, but how do you measure in a – it's almost – it's very difficult to get, yeah. you know, a neutral, standardised measurement of resilience. You know, oh. you, and morally yeah. questionable as well. We left all these children yeah. outside for yeah. six hours with no food. We saw who was still cheerful at the end of it. You know, you can't do that. No, <laughs> that's absolutely right. And one of the other difficulties too, as I mentioned, that the understanding of character and of the virtues is often culturally conditioned. It is often, and, and this is actually why in job interviews, uh, one of the criteria used to be character, and that's kind of falling out of favor now because character became this proxy for like, do you conform to the kind of virtues and qualities that like kind of white patriarchal structures see as like being part of our in-group, right? Being one of us, right? And so character actually, unfortunately, in the hiring and talent development process within companies, character became this kind of like proxy word for uh, things that were able to kind of perpetuate a lot of these workplace discrimination things. So uh, that's obviously not what character means or stands for. That's a word that needs to be rehabilitated and reclaimed. Um, but that, I mean, that is one of the difficulties, right? Is whoever's in power gets to decide what virtues are important and how those virtues are, are kind of cashed out. And unfortunately that's what happens. So you're absolutely right that measurement is tough. And at times, even depending on who's putting the measurement together and how they've done it can actually be really immoral and um, kind of perpetuate really unjust ways of doing things and structures. So, I mean, I think uh, I, there's a, there's a 
huge literature on trying to to measure these uh, character strengths. We're trying to draw from the best of that literature and develop our own using mixed methods, so both qualitative and quantitative approaches. Um, my background's more on the quantitative side, so I'm learning a lot about kind of the qualitative things and the 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 interesting things going on there. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's just one of these things that I think as the field continues to develop, hopefully there will be uh, better better ways of doing this. But I think I mean honestly, a lot of it comes down to the individual and being part of the right community, where you just kind of have to like introspect for yourself and have a community around you that can kind of call a spade a spade and be able to take you aside and call out like really, you know, areas of growth, I guess would be the diplomatic way of putting it. And I, I still think that all of these great kind of data-driven approaches are going to be great, but for the individual person, it really comes down to being able to take a hard, honest look at oneself and doing that regularly. And then also having loved ones that you really trust and who really trust you, who can, tell you hard truths, but also be a source of encouragement too, right? Like, I think that mm. that's also one of the challenges in schools too, is um, much as kind of failure over grades can be difficult, I would imagine that failures over not being the kind of person you want to be character-wise, that could be even more um, difficult to deal with, right? Because I think mm. it gets deeper <laughs> yeah. to the heart of identity. <laughs> yes, I suppose it, maybe it comes down to, it's just got to be intrinsic. It's got to be something that's self-motivated. Mm. And actually, even if no one else recognises it, if I'm this, a stronger character, I can cope with all the people not recognising that I'm such a strong <laughs> character. <laughs> that's right, that's right, and, that's absolutely uh, right. And it, it's equipping yourself for life or whatever life throws at you. So when your grades weren't so good and you're not recognized for the strength of your anti-fragility, when you go for yeah. your job interview, you can cope with that because you're not very fragile. It's <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Oh, golly, so much to talk to. I must just ask one more thing. Is it oh, yeah. uh, going back to joy? Um, mm. Does the study of joy take all the joy out of joy? Or does it amplify it? Oh, that's an amazing question. Uh, yeah, I think... I can't remember where I wrote it, but I wrote somewhere in one of the conclusions to something I wrote about joy. It might be in the original paper. It's like, like, yeah, and it's my hope for this field that like, it, it just won't just be the, the subject matter, but an occasion for it as well. Right. And I think, I think the amazing thing is that people who are kind of in this field, there are all autobiographical reasons why they're interested in studying joy. And I think being around people who sense the kind of urgency of this area of academic inquiry um, and and the importance of it uh, as, as a force for human flourishing and human liberation. Um, it's just really, really inspiring. And so it's certainly it's certainly been a real occasion of joy for 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 myself and, and I think for a number of other people in this field. Um, the reality is, I mean, a lot of it is really a slog, right? Like a lot of academic <laughs> papers you just kind of grin and bear it and got to get through it. And then sometimes, I mean, I'll be working on a paper and I'll just have like 900 sticky notes all over my room. And I'm like, how does it all fit together? And I look like one of those crazy conspiracy theory people with like the string. Right. Um, so it's definitely, it's definitely really difficult. I think particularly with the field being as disparate as it is, but I mean, just the people who work in it are so inspiring and so, driven and, uh, and uh, yeah, altruistically motivated, but there's also this kind of like autobiographical and personal urgency to it too. Right. Where I think a lot of people, it, it's similar stories to, to myself, right. They, they had one of the most defining, uh, experiences from their life story was this moment of intense joy. And they're, they're trying to feel something like that again. Right. It was this moment where life felt really full. It felt like everything being a human being could be, it felt like everything that, you, you finally found some some whisper or echo of your true self and, and you're just trying to get it back. And I think, uh, yeah, I think that's that's what's driving driving a lot of the, the work in this field. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely not just the subject matter, but but is often an occasion for it as well. Yeah. Yes. Oh, well, that's that's very encouraging. Matthew, thank you so much for talking to me. My brain's slightly frazzled now and I've got to go <laughs> and lie down in a darkened room. But um, it was just fascinating talking with you. And thank you for explaining things so clearly and uh, really giving us the, the sense of the, the value of aspiring to a joyful existence, I suppose, would be uh, what we'd look for. 
Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I was I was so honored when you reached out, and it's so it's so great talking to you, and it was really rich. And uh, thank you. Yeah, this thank conversation you. was was very much an occasion for joy. So thank you. Oh, so no, much. Definitely, <laughs> but you are a very joyful person. I think it's uh, it must have been rubbing off on you. So it's uh, yeah, it's just lovely to lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, you as well. Thank you so much. Well, I hope uh, you enjoyed the podcast and that gave you plenty to think about. Um, if you have any ideas, you can email me on mothersmatter at outlook.com in terms of ways in which we can live more joyful lives. I think the things I've taken away from chatting with Matthew are the, uh, well, in a way, the sort of irony that a joy is a very receptive emotion. It's something that you, um, if it's even an emotion actually, it's, it's something that you receive and you just sort of put yourself in a position and structure your life in such a way that you can um, recognize joy and experience it. And I think what I really was interested in was the challenge of the um, being a mother who's a joyful person and helping my children to be joyful uh, in terms of being in an environment where there is joy. Anyway, you see my problem. It's quite tricky to pin down, but hopefully um, you found that useful. I think gratitude, gratitude's the slightly easier concept to um hang on to and uh, it's easier to be <laughs> to feel gratitude to be to cultivate a state of uh, feeling grateful for things so um, I think that's something that we can definitely apply is looking for the things in our lives for which we are grateful which again is something that comes at us from other uh, people it's something that uh, we recognize in the world around us well, phew, um, uh, I recommend you listen to the podcast again and uh, try to get to the bottom of everything. Uh, I am on Instagram and Facebook as Mothers Matter Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Podcast Mothers. Um, I mentioned I'm Mothers Matter at Outlook.com. I'd love to hear from anyone with uh, any views or opinions. Please do um, try and take a moment to rate and review the podcast. I'm either looking in the wrong place or I haven't had any reviews since 2019. And that was like 20 years ago, wasn't it? 2019. So if you do get a chance to rate and review the podcast, it does help it uh, become more discoverable to other people. And thank you very much to James Ead, my producer, who um, put everything together for me. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.